This following program is brought to you by Muzo Radio Station. Produced and executive produced by Aaron Smith. All right, we're here live on Off Topic, the Aaron Smith Show. Thank you for tuning in. We have a lot to get into today. We have a lot to talk about. I'm really excited to just get into everything. And I know I say that a lot. That should really be my catchphrase for the show. We have a lot to get into. We have a lot to talk about. Because I say even when I don't know what we're going to talk about. But truthfully, we do have a lot to get into today. One of the segments I want to ask you guys about is, do you believe that essential workers should get paid at hazard pay or have some type of higher wages? We're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, However, I want to start out this episode by saying, Free my homie Joey Exotic. Free my homie Joey Exotic. And to Carol Baskins, lock her up. Uh, those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, if you have not watched Tiger King, please watch it. I really don't want to give that many spoilers. You're about to get a spoiler, though, so don't listen. Maybe it's not. We'll see. Uh, Carol Baskins, who this woman? This woman dedicating her life to advocating against violence against animals yet being willing to kill her husband and feed him to tigers is peak eco-fascism. Like, that is peak eco-fascism. Like, the fact that she's <laughs> cries on behalf and fights on behalf of the, of the well-being of animals, but she fed her husband to some tigers, and we all know she fed her husband to them tigers. Like, that is such peak eco-fascism. Like, that is if humans are the virus to the world was a person like, you know, you hear those people say humans are a virus to the earth. Humans are a cancer to the earth. Those that's, that's Carol Baskins. But as a person like right now, as this pandemic goes on with the coronavirus, Carol Baskins is probably one of those people that goes, well, the coronavirus, coronavirus is actually a blessing in disguise because it's cleansing the earth. She's one of them people. Like, I, I know she is. And we all know that she killed her husband. She fed that man to some tigers. And the fact that she would advocate on behalf of tigers, vicious animals, beautiful animals, but vicious animals, killer animals. The fact that she would advocate on behalf of them. Meanwhile, her husband, who has taken care of her and provided for her entire life, she feed him to some tigers. That's some eco-fascism on another level. And that's just wild to me. And that's all I just want to say about that. You guys haven't watched Tiger King. Please watch it. Um, now, to get into, uh, first, before we get into this topic, one of the things I want to touch on briefly, um, and I say briefly, but we don't know what that means on this show, on Off Topic, the Aaron Smith Show. Uh, thank you. I'm seeing more people tuning in. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I want to get into briefly Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, his comments that he made actually last Tuesday. Uh, he appeared on Fox News and in an effort to get people to get back to work so that the economy doesn't collapse. He said a lot of grandparents would be willing to die to stop a second Great Depression. Um, and I understood what he was saying. Like he was, you know, he's like, you know, if the economy continues to collapse, like we need to we can't continue to not work. We need to get back to work. But it grieved me in the sense that in the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of all that's going on, his response to fixing it is that a lot of a grandparents be willing to die to stop a second great depression depression. So essentially in order so that we can save the economy, we should get back to work, 
even if it means that that's going to come at the expense of people's lives. Specifically for older people, they're at more at risk to die of coronavirus. There's a 14.6% fatality rate from people between the ages of 80 and 89. Um, and just overall, people in their 60s and 70s are the most at risk, rather it be from pre-existing conditions, um, immune systems that are a lot weaker. Um, they're the ones who are most at risk. And so the fact that he'd be willing to sacrifice, you know, and I get it because he's old himself, but the fact that he's saying that grandparents are willing to sacrifice that, to me, that really grieved me. That that certainly did. Um, and, you know, when he said it, it, when he, you know, he was obviously trying to fix it. He's thinking about how we can get the economy going again, and he doesn't want the economy to collapse. Um, but when he said it, it immediately made me hearken back to um, the Great Depression, in the 1930s, in 1932, uh, President FDR was working in to provide stimulus social programs to the American people. And he was told, he was famously told, the economy will work itself out in the long run. Many Republicans continued to tell him that. They didn't want to, they're anti-interventionists, they didn't want to intervene in the state of the economy, they wanted to fix themselves. And they said to him, the economy will fix itself in the long run. To which President FDR's advisor, Harry Hopkins, famously replied, People don't eat in the long run. People eat every day. Today, I find myself in the juxtaposition of these two sentiments in which I say to the economy will work itself in the long run. People like Governor Dan Patrick, uh, I say to these people who are panicking right now, like him at the state of the economy, that we all just need to relax because the economy will work itself out in the long run. Yet is the people who must live every day. That's where I'm at today with that. I would rather save lives at the expense of the economy than save the economy at the expense of lives. Because the reality of it is we know how to rebuild an economy. The economy will rise again. Dead people don't. If we lose millions of people, which which studies are showing that we could lose 2% of the population due to coronavirus. Guys, that's millions of people. That is millions of people. If we could potentially lose millions of people, I would rather us quarantine, even if it means the economy will collapse, because I know the economy will rise again. Eventually, the economy will get better. I understand the the Dow reported that um, the Dow has went down six thousand four hundred points from its record, um, its record. Uh, numbers point from February 12th. It's went down over 6,400 points. Um, the NASDAQ went down 800 points. I understand this. I understand how much we've lost. But with that being said, the economy will always rise again. Dead people don't. And I'm not willing, and I never will be willing, to risk people's lives so that we can, so we can stimulate the economy. It's not worth it to me. 2% of people dying, that's millions, millions of people dying so that we can hold on to an economy that, to me, quite frankly, doesn't serve in the best interest of the working class anyways. With the with the growing uh, and rapid wealth disparity that, we, that continues to grow and that we continue to see here in America, it's not worth it to me. Um, and, and so those comments, when he said it, I was like, oh, man, like that's to me, whether he means to or not. In many ways, I believe I'm not going to say it's a morally bankrupt position to take because I understand why he took the position. But I will say this. It is a position in which it takes a, a level 
of cognitive dissonance and a lack of um, empathy for human life, the reality of, of, of death in life and the fin- finality of death um, for someone to take that stance. It takes someone who's, who's kind of dehumanizing people in the product. Like when you hear people throw, Oh, well, you know, if we get back to work, only 2% are, will die guys there. Those people, whether they mean to or not, they're dehumanizing people because they're looking at people as a statistic instead of as human beings, as their mother, as their grandmother, as the elders at their church, as the veterans, as the 65,000 veterans who sleep on the street right now, who are homeless. Um, they're reducing human life to a statistic or a number whether they mean to do it or not. That's what they're doing. And to me, I, I can't do that. I just can't. That 2% means everything to me because that 2% is millions of people. That 2% is human life. That 2% is someone's grandfather or grandmother. Maybe it's someone's father or mother. Maybe it's someone's child because just because it disproportionately affects old people doesn't mean that we haven't seen this, the, the coronavirus um, kill uh, people who are young too. That's millions of people who are losing their, their, their loved ones. The economy is not worth it to me. To them, I say in, in, in a very famous scripture, for what does it profit a man to gain the world yet lose his soul? And what do I mean that by that? Because someone could make the statement, well, what he's saying is actually very sacrificial, that grandparents be willing to know that grandparents be willing to sacrifice their life to save the economy. Guys, it's the, just the economy. I get it. I get it. It means a lot. It affects a lot of different things, but it's just the economy. The economy will rise again. Rather you think someone's old or not, as long as there's breath in their, their lungs, there's still purpose to their life. There's still people that love them. This idea that once people reach a specific age, they've exceeded their expiration date. It's, it's an, it's asinine. It's utterly, it's an asinine position. I hate to say it, but it just is. Um, and it's, and it's rooted in just this idea that you, that you as a human being, that your worth expires over time. And that's not the case. As long as you still have breath in your lungs, you still have a purpose. You still have worth. I'm not willing to cast aside old people just because I think, well, they've already lived their lives. If they're still alive, they still got a lot more life to live. Um, and, and, and that's personally how I feel about it. Like, I don't want to sacrifice human life at, for the sake of saving the economy. And and furthermore, if we're being honest, if the economy gets to the point where it's so depleted and the results are so ravaging, then the the all, the answer isn't to like, let's go back to work and kill off 2% of millions of people. No, the, the answer is that we should then probably redistribute wealth because if, if all of us were sitting right now in a group and we all had a pop tart and there was one person sitting there starving who didn't have a pop tart, my answer wouldn't be, um, all right, well, to the people who've already had pop tarts, well, you just go ahead and starve and give yours up because you've had pop tarts. You've had plenty of pop tarts in your lifetime. No, my answer would be, let's all break off a piece of what we have and redistribute it so that they have that person who's starving has something to eat. I know that's a funny analogy, but that's just all I could come up with at the moment. Like, that's what I think. So when it pertains to the situation, like if the, if this, if this pandemic, if coronavirus caused the economy to continue to collapse and we're reaching ravaging results that we haven't seen since, if not the great depression, then just the recession back in a way, 
then the, the answer isn't, well, let's just go back to work and let 2% of the population die. The answer then should be, maybe we should redistribute wealth. Because the illusion is believing that there's not more than enough resources, resources on this earth, and specifically here in America, to take care of everybody. There is. The issue is, is that it's disproportionately in the hands of some and not others. That's what the actual issue is. It's not, and that, that's what kind of what sometimes I think people forget, is like people have this idea somewhat, in their mind because that, you know, that, Oh, if the economy collapsed, we're, you know, it's going to be, everything's going to be depleted. We're going to be in a state of a state of lack. One, one of the things we need to understand that's it's really important to point out is even as we're speaking about an economic recession, or even, even as we speak about the economy collapsing, that's relative to America. That's relative to the fact that we're one of the wealthiest countries on earth and we enjoy privileges and resources that the majority of the world does not have. We're a first world country. Um, so even when we begin to think about the idea of, you know, well, oh, well, if the economy collapses, it's going to be so terrible. Yeah, it's going to be terrible. But like, guys, there's already people who are living way worse than we are who are surviving and. Uh, they're not in the state of a pandemic like they weren't in a state of pandemic. Obviously, the world is now. But, you know, that's what it boils down to. So it's not like it's, we have to understand that the, the idea of an economic collapse is or just us going into crippling poverty. It's a relative term. I'm not sitting here trying to say, well, well what about the poor people in Africa? Because that's uh, we can talk a lot about that. But what I am saying is is that even this idea of the economy is going to collapse that much. Yeah, it's going to collapse, but it's relative to the fact that we are still a first world country. And more than anything, it, it affects like what's crazy is like these gov like a governor like him, like they're thinking about like the, the corporations and the businesses and stuff. Like, I mean, it's going to affect the poor more than anybody. Like, even if that's what he's thinking about too, because maybe it's not fair for me to frame it that way and say that he's not thinking about that as well. I mean, the reality of it is, is like, we're still going to be able to survive, but more importantly, if there were stronger safety nets beforehand, then the results of an economic collapse wouldn't put us lower class and working class people at the brink of an existential threat to survive. Not in the sense that the virus itself, yes, obviously that's an existential threat that we can't account for. But I'm talking about like economically, like the fact that that a, a pandemic can come and it can collapse the economy to the point where millions of people are going to are going to starve and they're not going to be able to survive. It speaks to the fact that if we had stronger safety nets beforehand, this wouldn't happen. Working class people shouldn't be living paycheck to paycheck. Working class people shouldn't go from one minute. Everything's good. And then the moment a pandemic strikes or something, uh, uh, something like this happens. Now, all of a sudden, how are we even going to survive? The fact that that even exists means that this is a, this is a issue that there should have been preventative measures taken so that this never even happens or becomes a reality. Not something that we try to put a bandaid over now. Um, but also it's important to understand once again, like I'm saying the redistribution of wealth should be the next step. If anything, not let's go back to work and let 2% of the population die, which once again, that's millions of people. Um, people got to understand this, the net worth of us households and nonprofit organizations and the first quarter of 2019 was $94.7 trillion. That is a record level, both in nominal terms and purchasing power parity. If, you were to divide, if we were to divide that equally among 124 million U.S. households, that would mean that every single one of us, every single family, I should say, would have 
a net worth of $760,000. Guys, that's insane. That means if we were to divide the amount of money that we made in the first quarter of 2019 as a country and divided it equally amongst all U.S. households, over 124 million households, we would all have $760,000. I mean, all of us would be borderline millionaires. For one, that just speaks to just how wealthy of a country America actually is. It's just disproportionately in the hands of very few, a small minority. Um, however, that's not the reality that that's just, that's hypothetical. The reality is the bottom half of America right now, 50% of the families in America, which represents 62 American households have an average net worth of $11,000. Think about that. If we were to divide just what we made in the first quarter of 2019 equally, if we were to divide that equally, we would all have 760, every household would have $760,000. That's borderline millionaire. But instead because such a small percentage of people have, have are the ones who made this amount of wealth, 50% of families representing 62 million American households instead have an average net worth of 11,000. Think about the difference between 11,000 and 760,000 borderline millionaire and then $11,000. That's insane. That's the difference if we were to divide everything equally. And I'm not sitting here saying that we should, oh, this is definitely what you do, yada, yada. But I'm just saying, just to give perspective to it, and just to give a perspective between the difference between 11000 and 760000 which is almost a million dollars, the difference between, we're not even going to get into that, but I just want you guys to know that's a lot. That's that's really, really a ton of money. Um. So when we when we speak on this, like even right now, we have more than enough resources to survive this pandemic, even if it work, worsens on a record level. The issue is the majority of these resources are in the hands of a small minority. That's called the one percent. The richest on one percent own nearly 50 percent of all global assets and half of the world's wealth. The richest one percent own more wealth than the bottom 90 percent of the United States. Like, matter of fact, a list of uh, Forbes, the Forbes did a Forbes did a 400 list on the 400 richest Americans. And they did this about a year ago and they, and they determined that the 400 richest, richest Americans own more wealth than half of all Americans combined. That's crazy. 400 men in America own more wealth than half of all of America combined. That's 50% of America Four 400 men own more than like that's millions and millions and millions and millions of people. 82% of all global wealth is generated by that 1%. So to me, it's just this idea that the logical conclusion to ending the economic ravishes, if they are to work, if they, if they worsen would be for everyone to just go back to work and allow potentially 2% of the population to die, as opposed to simply redistributing the wealth of the ruling class. To me, that's almost a morally bankrupt stance that prioritizes the well-being of the rich over like human life. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. Like why would the next conclusion be? Let's just risk our lives. And also there's another thing to point out. If we were that 2% of the population that potentially die, that's could be significantly higher based upon if all of us are going out of our way to, to not listen to that. And we're all going back to work. How much more millions might actually die? I don't know. I can't account for it, but I tell you what, I'd rather just redistribute the wealth of the richest people in the country that own more than half the country anyways, um, than to send everyone back to work and allow millions of people to die. So, you know, to me, that's just, that was something that it was worth pointing out. And, you know, and I, and I understand it. I'm not completely against 
this the, his concern, Governor Patrick's concern, or anyone's concern with the state of the economy. It is important. Like, you know, obviously, like the economy collapse, that would be very, very terrible, specifically for working class people. But um, I don't think the I don't think that the means the 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 uh the means justify the ends it just doesn't in that case scenario it just doesn't you know so like for me as as much as the economy is going to suffer i hope that we all stay at home we take this pandemic very seriously because it's, it's important to point out that china they plan on ending their their quarantine they plan on ending their quarantine april 8th they started theirs back in january 23rd that's almost four months and just to put in perspective for a second, because they're an autocratic government, because China is an autocratic government and they have the ability to force um, their citizens to do what they say, like they're able to force them to do it. They're able to quarantine over 700 million um, citizens at once. Towards here in America, we're doing it by choice. We're leaving it up to the states. So we're not doing that. Also, China um on top of this, they immediately started turning their like old coliseums and arenas into uh, makeshift hospitals. And then they and then they built like two hospitals. Yeah, they built two hospitals in Wuhan in a week. That's insane. Just to address the pandemic. Um, we don't have the infrastructure. We don't we don't have that infrastructure. Secondly, because our social distancing and our quarantine is essentially by choice and it's not by force the way China it was able is able to do theirs because they're an autocratic government. It means that it might take even a little bit longer than it took them in order for than it's taking them in order for us to, for our quarantine to end. Now, it is important to point out we have a fraction of the population that China has. They have over 1.3 billion citizens. Like that's insane. The largest population in the world as of now. India is soon going to surpass that. But nonetheless, um, we do have a fraction of the population that they have but that's still giving you a telltale sign that like okay if it's taking them from january 23rd and they're just now going to end theirs april 8th how much longer is it going to take us especially considering that they did theirs by force they forced people to quarantine to whereas us is actually choice and there's plenty of people who are still out in public you know so that's just giving an idea um so during this time yeah it's the economy is gonna it's gonna hurt and to me what i think is incredibly important there are two ways to respond to fear. You can respond to fear. You can respond to crisis out of in a in an instinct of self preservation in, in a kind of like in an instinctual thought of self preservation to say, "All right, I'm just going to worry about myself," which inevitably might lead to our demise. Or you can choose in the midst of fear that now more than ever we need to band together. And for me, like I've echoed these sentiments before on this show. Um, what there, there's, there's no better time than right now in the midst of this pandemic that perfectly illustrates just how much we're connected to one another. I don't care. You can be the most individualistic person in the world and I'm gonna get mine. It doesn't matter. This pandemic more than anything shows just how much we are interconnected to one another and that the choices and decisions I make don't just affect me, but they affect everyone else. So with this being said, I believe this is a time to adopt the ideology of communitarianism, to adopt this mindset that we're in this together collectively. We're sharing this experience with one another. And the only way to get through it, the only way to get through this crisis is to work together. And it's and it's a crazy it's, you know, 
it's a oxymoron almost in, in many ways that, it, you know, the paradox, I'll say this, it's really a paradox. The paradox of what's going on right now is that we're all having to social distance from one another, which means that we all have to be willing to work together. We all have to work together in order for us to stay away from each other individually. And that, like, I don't know how there's a better way to word that right now. I mean, I'm, I'm a poet. I should have a better way. Um, and maybe if I'd have thought it out better, I would, but it, it is kind of a paradox. If you think about it, like, wow, like the, the, the only way we're going to get through this is to work together. And the only way to work together, we have to do this individually. Like, because we can't do this together. If we're all together, that's not quarantining. And it, and it's crazy to think about that. Like, the paradox of all of this is the fact that the only way we're going to survive through it is if we work together. And the only way to work together is to work alone. Um, and that's really, that's really, honestly, it's insane to think about that way. But um, it's possible. And I think that speaks both to the best to me, it speaks to the best ethos in which I believe that America has been founded upon, which is not just this idea of self-empowerment and being self-sufficient, independent and making it on your own, but also understanding our collective social responsibility to one another to make the world a better place because it takes both. It, it, it truly does take both. And oftentimes we act as though, um, self-empowerment and social responsibility are mutually exclusive. Um, we act as though this is binary that they're, or that they work in opposition with one another, but rather they're actually, rather they're actually cohesive. They must work as a cohesive unit. Um, and these are two simultaneously obtainable goals. We can, we can, um, work as individuals and empower ourselves, but also we must acknowledge our, collective social responsibility to help each other out, to guide each other, to help protect each other, to help, to help love one another. Like, and that's, that's to me the best ethos of America is when we operate in both of those mindsets, instead of being one, going to one extreme, like, Oh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's all about, you know, you just got to make it on your own, forget everybody else, because that's not true. Even people who, who, even people who've worked very hard and they were self-sufficient and independent, the reality is they got where they got and they are who they are because of the resources and opportunities that have been allotted to them. It's by the collective efforts of the people in their life and people that they've never met that love them and cared for them enough to make their, uh, to make their dreams come true, to make their success possible. Um, and in the same sense, that's what's being highlighted today is that, you know, you, you through all of this, through this pandemic, it's wow. We're going to have to have the, independent mind power and the will and determination, the self-determination to quarantine and do the right thing while simultaneously understanding and acknowledging our collective social responsibility to one another to get through this and to make this country a better place and to make our society a better place and to make sure that we can get through this. That's what it boils down to. It takes both. Um, and that's what I hope people really rally behind more than ever as we go through this pandemic is like, the, you know, the best way to get through this, it's going to be us working together. It's going to be us understanding, wow, my actions don't just affect me. It, they affect everyone. Now, more than ever, this statement is true. It's always been true, but sometimes it takes, unfortunately, sometimes it takes tragedy or it takes a crisis in order for us to realize just how connected we truly are to one another. But 
guess what? Now we're here. Now we're at this moment in which we have must realize, wow, we're very connected to one another more so than I thought we were. Um, and so because of this, we navigate this shared experience together. That's the way we get through it by understanding our, our, um, our individual responsibility and also understanding our social responsibility to help people out to better the world. I don't know how bad it gets. I'm not sure because once again, um, with this pandemic, it's important to point out the average vaccine takes 10 to 15 years in order to create. Now that is not the time timetable for this specific vaccine that they're trying to create right now. Uh, the world health organization reported there's over 20 vaccines that are currently being developed in order to, um, in order to uh, confront coronavirus. Um, but with that being said, we're at least a year and a half away, at least at best, we're a year and a half away from having a vaccine, at least a year and a half away. That's if everything goes perfect, like we've that that's how the time scale of how long it's going to take for us to have a vaccine. Um, so as great as it is now, granted, with the advent of the technology we have in the world collectively working together right now, maybe we can get that vaccine um, significantly faster. But the reality of it is, is that right now they're saying, hey, it, at, the, at, at the very least, it's going to be another year and a half before we have this vaccine, which means that even if it does disappear in the summertime, which we're still not sure that it does. But even if it does disappear in the summertime, which we're certainly not sure of, um, it could easily reappear again and it will reemerge in the fall. It's going to come back. And once again, that's just that's if this is just a seasonal virus like this virus might actually last through the summertime. Um, And we're a year and a half away from a vaccine. And like, man, I hope it's faster, man. I really, really do, because that's a long time. But I, I say that to say we have no idea just how long we're really in this for. And there's a lot of hopeful and optimistic thinking going around because we're in uncharted territory. So when we hear our government, or our leaders and our officials, our government officials saying, oh, well, you know, we think everything should be clear by June. Guys, they're giving you incredibly hopeful, optimistic ideas. There's no guarantee that that's the timestamp at all. That this is when that there's no guarantee that this is timestamp because once again we don't know when this virus will actually end. Right now we have more cases than anyone currently. America has more cases of coronavirus currently than any other than any other country, and there's very few people who've even gotten tested. So that's what's scary. We're not truly sure when it's going to end. I believe that it's a lot longer than we want to believe or we expect, and the only thing that will make us come back faster is truthfully, if the only thing that's going to make us uh, leave this quarantine faster is more than likely if the government just decides that the economy is worth more than the 2% that could potentially die from the, from this pandemic. And we all go back to work. That's the only thing I can think, which I would hate for that to happen. So, I mean, yeah, we're in a state of isolation that might last a, a very long, it might last a while. Um, eventually I think we are going to have to do a government lockdown completely, but we'll see when we get there. Uh, nonetheless, like I said, it's just important that we recognize, um, we got to get through this together and, and it's, and it's about, it's honestly, it's about valuing each other more than we do anything else. We got to value human life more than we do the economy. Like all of that is so secondary, because if if you, if things get that bad, which there's no telling how bad things get, and it's to the point where 
People are starving. Guys, I promise you, we have more than enough resources here in America. We have more than enough resources to make sure that all of us collectively have a place to lay our heads at night and that all of us collectively have food in our stomach. We have more than enough resources. So at that point, the answer, if if it gets that bad, the next step should be a redistribution of wealth. It should not be. Let's just go back to work and we'll let we'll we'll just take the risk and let bygones be bygones. Um, But I want to get into that segment very quickly. Thank you for tuning in to Off Topic Darren Smith Show. Uh, We'll be back in a few moments. Got another really great segment to get in. So just keep tuning in. Can we get much higher? So this following program is brought to you by Muzo Radio Station. Produced and executive produced by Aaron Smith. All right, we're back here live with Off Topic, the Aaron Smith Show. Uh, for this next segment, about to get into... Uh, I know you guys, I really want to hear you guys perspective on this. I'll share my perspective as well. Uh, but yeah, for this next segment, I want to talk about, do you believe that in essential employees should get higher wages right now? Do you believe that there should be, they should be given some type of hazard pay? So for everyone right now, who's considered an essential employee, you're someone who's still going to work despite this pandemic. Um, do we do all of us, do we believe that, Essential employees should be making more money. Should they be given higher wages um, or some type of hazard pay? And uh, as you guys chime in in the comments, because our phones are down right now, as you guys chime in in the comments, I'll make sure to read them out loud. Um, Yeah, we'll get to them for sure. Absolutely. Uh, So first and foremost, I'm going to be honest and say, absolutely. Yes. Honestly, I think it's a no brainer. Yes. I believe that in essential employees, unequivocally, I believe that essential employees should be getting higher wages. And I think that they should be given a hazard pay, but uh, I'm going to be honest, like for a few reasons. One, I mean, just the very main and basic reasons is that guys in the midst of a global pandemic in which we're in the midst of a crisis in, in which they're telling people to stay home and that they need to stay home. There are people who are still waking up and going to work because they're deemed as essential. They're deemed as being a necessity that we need them in order for people to be able to eat, in order for, for, for our economy not to completely collapse. The fact that those people are putting themselves, if you're an essential employee, I'm talking about you. The fact that you are putting yourself in harm's risk and potentially endangering your family, your grandparents, your parents, your uh, the fact that you're doing this. Anybody else in your family who has um, any type of respiratory issue or preexisting conditions, the fact that you're willing to put you and your family at harm's risk in order to not only sustain the economies, but so that we have have the products and, and services that we still need um you deserve a hazard pay you deserve higher wages like it should it should really it should be a no-brainer that quite frankly even if like really small companies even if they couldn't afford to like pay too much more they're literally in that bill in that stimulus bill there should have been an aspect there should have been a part where there was a certain there was a certain wage in which hazard pays had to get paid rather it be the same as overtime how you would do overtime hours or even double that 
or maybe even say, all right, this is how much they could, they, they need to get paid. Plus at the end of the year, when you've kind of been able to recover some of your losses, they need to get paid an additional bonus, which that's what I really think it should be. Like, I think it should be, um, more than what a worker would make if it was like overtime pay, which is your wages and a half more than just that, more than just like a wage and a half. I think that also there should be some type of bonus allotted to them at the end of the year. Once these businesses are able to recover. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You should, if you're working in the midst of this pandemic right now and you're considered an essential employee, um, you should be getting a hazard pay and, or, or some type of higher wages. Absolutely. Lance, uh, absolutely. I agree. I'm working at a restaurant right now and it's honestly really dangerous. I feel like I'm putting myself at risk. I should definitely get paid more. We all should. Yeah, I agree with you guys. Someone else. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Let me see what else you guys are saying real quick. Um, as you chime in, in the comments, continue to leave comments. Our phones are down. Uh, but if you are watching this, rather be on Facebook or our website or whatever it might be. Um, if you're watching me live here in the studio, continue to chime in and I'll read your statements out loud. Let's see what else you guys are saying. I do not want to miss it. Mark Yunkin Myers has given its employees a temporary two hour raise through the end of April. I guess you'd call that a hazard pay. Um, I think it should be more than a two hour raise. Like, like I would, especially for a place like Myers, like those are actually larger, like business corporations that have the ability to pay a lot more than some mom and pa shop. And quite frankly, those businesses, should, they should be paying considerably more money to their employees. Like, honestly, I think that personally, I, I think they, if I'm being honest, I think um, workers should be getting paid like $21 an hour which I think that should be the minimum wage anyways. But I think that workers should actually be getting paid about $21 an hour for being honest. So because of that, for me, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, there, if you're an essential employee, you should be getting paid considerably more than what you're being paid right now. But also I'm going to say something else to you guys. I'm going to say something else. If you are an essential employee, the fact that there are many entry level jobs in which people are only making 10 to 12, 15 an hour that are now being deemed essential during a global crisis. It speaks to the fact that these jobs were always a lot more valuable than the market was leading you to believe to begin with. And you should get a paid a lot more than you are. Now, I'm not just talking about during the pandemic, bump the pandemic at this point in general, the fact that you are considered an essential an essential employee in the midst of a global pandemic speaks to the fact that you're worth a lot more than what they're paying you at the moment. You're worth considerably more than what they're paying you and you should get paid more. I'm just being honest. You should definitely get paid more. I see what you guys are saying. So you think that. Yeah. So do you think that people working in the restaurant industry should get should have a higher minimum? Yeah, absolutely. They should have a higher minimum wage. Sorry, I'm reading comments right now. Uh, yes. Davis asked, do I believe that people working in the restaurant energy sh industry and other businesses should have a higher minimum wage? The answer is absolutely yes. Our minimum wage hasn't been raised in over 10 years. But, yeah, I think that we should be getting. Yes. Like that's the thing that blows my mind sometimes is that. When we're speaking about minimum wage and things of this nature, 
there's this mindset that, well, if you work a low skill job or a certain job, like you don't deserve that. And to me, that blows my mind. I'm not going to lie. Um, because as a worker, you have to understand that in the, in the, in the rules of business and the laws of business, everyone's job and what they're trying to do is maximize profit. Your boss is constantly trying to maximize his profit. The company you work for is constantly trying to maximize his profit, get a higher percentage of the revenue with the companies they partner with and get lower prices from the companies they buy from. Businesses are constantly fighting, having lockouts, contract disputes and stalemates for this reason to maximize their profit. When your company, when your company constantly demands more, we call it savvy business. And we could say, oh, well, that, you know, that CEO is being ambitious or that company just, you know, that's that, that's just savvy business when they demand more. But then when we working class people, when we demand more, we're being entitled and we're being lazy and we should stop being ungrateful. And if well, if you want more then you should go get a college education. And I, for the life of me, cannot understand this because your job as a, as as are the job of the working class, like everyone in business is to maximize your profits. Well, how do you maximize profits? By demanding more. That's how you maximize profits. Like, and that's what's crazy to me is because the working class is the only group to me of, of laborers in the world of business. They're the only group of laborers that we don't fight. We, we don't fight for more. We don't demand more and we just accept the status quo. Someone tells you your job is only worth twelve fifty and you just accept it. I just accept it, whatever it is. Oh, your job's worth $12.50. So we all just collectively accept that that's what the job is worth. No. Do you think that that company, do you think that when a company says, this is uh, our start out pay, this is what we pay, do you think they're actually paying you what they can afford? Like, do you think they're actually paying you the maximum amount they're, they're able to pay you? Absolutely not. That would be ridiculous for them. From a business standpoint, their job is to maximize profit and cut expenses. So if they know that you're willing to settle for twelve fifty an hour, why would they offer you seventeen an hour? They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. And so at that point, if you're a working class, you are worth what companies are willing to pay you, but you won't know what you're worth unless you demand it until you push that limit. And it's weird to me because every, like I said, every in the world of business, everyone else understands this businesses and corporations are constantly maximizing their profit. They're constantly cutting losses, trying to get the best trade deals with the companies they have to partner with for distribution or for the product to be shipped for them, the ship to them, whatever it is. They're always trying to maximize their profits and demand more yet. The working class, like we're the only ones who feel like, well, we shouldn't demand more like, Oh, why should a McDonald's worker get paid 15, 10 an hour? What? What do you mean? Why would they not? Like you, people got to understand something like the reason that employers aren't working you for 18 hours a day, seven days a week for $3 an hour in hazardous, dangerous conditions is because we, the workers demanded better. Literally the reason right now that you're not making like $3 an hour working in a sweatshop, 18 hours a day, Every single day. The reason that that's not a reality is because we, the workers, demanded more. Employers didn't morally decide one day on their own to change those realities because, well, those are inhumane. No, we, the workers, had to refuse to settle for those realities. Therefore, our employers, our, our employers had to make those changes. The reason that right now you're only making eleven fifty an hour is not because that's the wages your job is actually. That's not. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me repeat that. The reason that right now you're only making 1150 an hour is not because that's the wages your job is actually worth. It's not because they can't afford to pay you more. It's because that's what we, the workers have settled for. That's what it boils down to. You, you will only know your worth when you demand it. You only know what you're worth when you demand more. If you never demand more, you'll never figure out what you're actually worth. It's like, um, I wish there was some movie I saw. There was some movie I saw where, um, I forget the person was, they were arguing and they demanded a raise and like they demanded some raise and that, and their employer agreed. And then afterwards they said, wait a minute, if I would have said X amount, would you have said, yeah. And the employer was like, yeah, but you didn't ask. And so what it was letting them know was they, the company was only worth, the company was only willing to pay you that, which you demanded that would a lot of your, a lot of your worth. And this is just a rule of life. This goes beyond business. A lot of your worth to other people is contingent upon your self-worth. Like we learn that in relationships and every aspect of life, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of your value and your worth is dependent on how much you value yourself and how much you think you're worth. Um, and I'm not saying that you as an individual walk into your job and demand a higher wage. No, but what I am saying is that we collectively at work as workers, we got to demand more. Like there's a, like, there's a reason that we're, we have a minimum wage today and that we we're working five hour work weeks instead of seven day work weeks. The reason that there's an overtime paying things that nature, because a, a group of workers, they banded together, they unionized and they demanded more. Everybody in business is constantly demanding more from the market. The CEOs, the executive, the people on salary, all the way up to the owner, rather be in trade agreements or whatever. Everyone's constantly demanding more from the market. The working class, we're the only ones that accept the status quo. They tell us your job's worth $10. We just go with it. Like, all right. He says it's worth $10. To me, I mean, I'll just never understand it because it's so backwards. (laughs) It's so backwards from how like, how it should actually be. But it's not something that I, I clown people for because a lot of people don't know this. Like, so there, you know, there's an economic theory called marginal product, which essentially is an economic theory that says, says workers get paid their marginal product of labor. A worker's work is a worker's worth is relatively, it's a lot closer to the worth of the product. Um, however, due to a lack of unions, which is what we have now and efficiency wage considerations, uh, what a worker is actually worth, they never actually get because if a worker is fired as of now, the supply of labor doesn't instantly drop back down to zero. So companies get away with paying their employees less than their marginal product. Companies are actually paying you a lot less than your worth because they can, because of our failure to unionize there, because that's the thing. It takes time. And that's the thing, the, the a scarce resource that people aren't always willing or can always give. Um, for the effects of the loss of of workers or that marginal product to be felt by a company, it takes time. And they're able to usually replace that that minor cog that they got rid of before they begin to experience the loss because we as workers don't have enough class solidarity. We don't work together enough and unionize the way we should. But in in, in that really just speaks to the fact that, you know, labor unions, labor unions aren't in many ways, they're depleted. They aren't what they once were. Um, and that, and that's really what it really boils down to, you know, it's like, if you talk just for instance, a lot of people don't even know that much about unions, but 
you know, the history of labor unions, unions have that have existed in many, in many forms since the beginning of America, since really in a very, very long time, but since the beginning of America here in this country, um, their job was to protect the rights of the worker, to make sure workers are getting paid a decent and livable wage, to make sure that there's health standards and other codes of conduct, things of this nature. That's always been the job of labor unions. Now, the impact of labor unions or the power of labor unions uh, from a historical standpoint, um, and because I want to touch on this for a second, I think it's important. From a historical standpoint, um, labor unions begin to receive a lot of power during the Civil War era. Why? One, the emancipation of slavery meant that a lot of people need skilled in they needed both skilled laborers and unskilled laborers. They just need workers Two, because we're actually in a war, meaning there is products that need to be produced in order for that war to be funded. And two and three, because the um, there's a lot of workers who weren't working because they were at war. It meant that there were a ton of workers being needed. And because the demand was high for workers, they were able, the unions had an unprecedented amount of power that they were able to leverage in order to get some rights for workers that they needed. Then initially, like later on, Congress became more like sympathetic toward the labor force. And as time passed, like they created obviously the Department of Labor. Um, then the Clayton Antitrust Act was created in 1914. I don't know how much uh, people know about that, but essentially that allowed employees to strike and boycott uh, their employers. And then that was followed by a public contract and then the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, which is also like another big piece of legislation. Um, it mandated that there be a minimum wage, extra pay for overtime and uh, basic child labor laws. Like that's what's crazy. Like I, I really want people to understand for a second, like, and I'm going to get to that point again later, but the reason we have these things, the reason that we have child labor laws, minimum wage, overtime pay and a five day work week is not because business has decided, well, this is right. Humans, de- our workers deserve this. no, The reason we have that is because we demanded it. There was no moral incentive for them to give us what we deserved. We had to demand it. What makes us think we stop now? Like what makes you think if we had to do that now that we couldn't make considerably more money or things couldn't be considerably better on our better for us on our jobs, rather that be from um, healthcare all the way to simple uh, like this, your simple, simple, your simple wages. Um, what makes you think or like when we start talking about things like uh, paid leave and things like that, um, paid leave for vacation, like what makes you think that that stuff isn't possible? It's not that that stuff's not possible. It's that we failed to demand it. Therefore, we don't know what we actually are worth and we don't know what we could actually get. And that's the scary thing, like because literally if no one would have if no one would have demanded what their with workers wouldn't have demanded what they were worth all the way back in 1914. We would literally have like 13 year olds working in sweatshops 18 hours a day, getting their fingers cut off for $3 a day. Like that's truthfully like that's really what it boils down to, um, which is crazy to me. Now, uh, now after this point, like labor unions, they really, like I said, they had a lot of power from the civil war really all the way up to all the way up to world war one. They had unprecedented. It was just incredible amounts of power. Then, they kind of disappeared throughout the 20s because there was so much economic growth at the time. Then as the 30s emerged in the midst of the Great Depression, boom, this is when um, these labor unions reemerged and they were able to just, oh man, they were just able to get so much leverage 
in so much power. They're able to do so much to help the workers um, and kind of, once again, to maximize the profits and the benefits of the workers, which is the just laws of business. Um, and then essentially what happened at that point is eventually labor unions, because people are like, well, what happened to them now? Well, they declined. It, and that really happened more in the 1970s. But um, and there was a lot of corruption within labor unions. They would like have gang affiliation. There would be mobsters and all types of stuff. There was all types of crooked ties in unions, which made it really sticky. Um, but eventually the demise of unions didn't even happen until the 1970s. Uh, but it's really important to point out, like we can't even look at it from like, cause if you ask like, all right, yeah. Cause actually look, someone just asked me now in the comments, Jesse Leva. I'm sorry. I, f- I sound like I can't read sometimes. My fault. Uh, Jesse Leva. Well, why, why do we not hear about unions now? Okay. Yeah. That's actually, I'm glad you're here. That's what we're getting to. So the unions failed and the, the unions really begin to fail and like, or decline in the seventies. That was a major turning point. Um, but the two failures that really happened that defined everything, uh, hap- actually happened during the end of world war two, which one was the pass, uh, was the passage of the Taft Harley act. And also too, was just the failure of unions to campaign to unionize the South with their operation Dixie campaign. So I'll start, I'll start with the Taft Harley act for a second real quick. And I, once again, I just think it's important to give this type of context this type of historical context because it's it's really beneficial so the passage of the taft harley act that happened in 1914 for 1947 which is two years removed from world war ii um it placed like a ton of restrictions on unions most of which actually still exist today uh it prohibited like secondary boycotts and sympathy boycotts and opened the door to the right to work laws which prohibit employers from hiring only union employees that now exists in 27 states around the country, like right now. Um, so these things made unionizing and just going on strikes a lot harder. Then from there, it's important to point out the Operation Dixie campaign also really, really hurt. The failure to the failure to uh, accomplish the Operation Dixie campaign is what I should say. So the Operation Dixie campaign was a campaign that was led by unions to unionize the South, specifically the Southern textile industry. They wanted to unionize the South. That way they had strong or strong regional presence in the South and then across the entire country, which makes unions just a lot more powerful. However, the textile, the textile industries in the South failed to unionize because what essentially happened, there was a little bit of a miss. There was a little bit of, um, it was unorganized, but also the main reason that it really failed was because People who are against the idea of unions, CEOs and owners of company who didn't want unions, because obviously, why would they? Um, they begin to spread propaganda to fight against the spread of unions in the South, to spread against the Operation Dixie campaign. And specifically what they would do, one, is they would demonize the union leaders as being communists, which that isn't completely a lie. There were a lot of union leaders who were communists. And obviously, this is during the time of, um, you know, the Red Scare and many people, they were they communism was very much demonized and people were afraid of communism um, in, in America. And so because of this, because of this reason, it allowed um, because of like the fear of communism and stuff by the businesses 
painting all these people, all these businesses who were against the idea of unions in the South, specifically for the textile industry, what they were able to do was say, Hey, these people are unpatriotic. These union leaders are communists. Do you want, do you really want them representing you? Do you want to be a part of that? And then two, another really crazy thing they did, which we've echoed, we've echoed these sentiments before, which I'm about to say sentiments. I'm sorry. So the other really effective thing that the owners who were against union unionization were able to do in the South was they were able to convince the working class whites in the South that these union leaders, they're working with black people. Like, do you want to be seen? Do you want to work on with black people? Do you want to be seen as equal to blacks? Like, do you want to have to, do you want uh, your, Pretty much they're saying, like, do you want your life, your career, your profession to be tied into blacks? And so because of this, because they were able to play on really just racism, they're able to convince a lot of white workers not to do it. There was even like a famed, famous article that came out at the time that said, and this blows my mind. It said, who do you want to be ruled by, the whites or the blacks? And essentially what this what this was this was uh article was stating is that for one, it subconsciously was acknowledging the fact that they were ruled by the whites, quote unquote. But once again, to be more specific, they were, they were, they were uh, targeting this propaganda towards working class whites. The whites they were ruled by were the ruling class. It was the rich. So for one, they were, this article subconsciously admitted that there's clearly a class structure in which you're being ruled over. And then two, but it says, who would you rather be ruled over whites or the blacks? And essentially what it was saying was, you know, like, do you really want your life and your profession and career to be mucked up and convoluted with the professions of blacks and their, and uh, their motivations for labor wages and things like that. And so they're able to, make it look unappealing to Southern whites simply by proximity to whiteness. The reality was this though, the white working class in the South had a lot more in favor with the working class blacks and the lower, the lower class blacks. than they did these quote unquote whites that ruled them. That were the rich, that were the 1% that was these businesses and corporations. They had much more in favor with the blacks with, with black people, but and it's so funny, by the way, saying the blacks, because to me, saying the blacks sounds so like racist because it's such an old way of speaking the blacks. Uh, but but I was I got carried away because I'm talking in um, context to what the article said. It literally says the whites are the blacks, um, the blacks. Anyways, um, if they were able to convince I digress. I'm sorry. Um, off topic. Uh, so they were able the ruling class was able to convince working class whites that simply by proximity to whiteness alone, just because we share the same skin color that you're better off standing in solidarity with us than some blacks. They played on that racism and that xenophobia. Um, They played on this idea that by proximity to whiteness alone, this identity politics, they pandered to the, this identity politics that said simply because you're white and we're white, you should want to be on our side. Why do you want to be in solidarity with the blacks? Um, I didn't say it's in the blacks, (laughs) but in that point right there, it's so crazy to me because, and I've echoed these sentiments before the ruling class historically has always been able to convince the white working class in the lower class and lower class whites that 
which really is the same. But they're able to, they've always been able to convince working class whites that simply by pandering to identity politics, by whiteness alone, by proximity to whiteness, that they should actually stand in solidarity with them, the ruling class, than black people. Where do I, why do I say this? Take it, give me a second. I'll take you all the way back to slavery just for a quick second. I know I'm giving you guys a history lesson, but it's really important. Like there are times on the show where con- content is as far as like knowledge information is more important than strictly just entertainment. You know, we're going to always have a really good show. Um, Oh yeah. I like you guys comments. Yo, this is so facts. I learned about this in school. Yeah, shout out. I, I appreciate that. Thanks, Caitlin. Um, but if you go all the way back to slavery, during slavery, literally, the existence of slavery actually hurt working class whites. Why? Well, because slave labor was free labor, which means as long as the there was the slave slavery existed, there was an existence of free labor. Therefore, the owners of these businesses, these plantations, they are they they were never incentivized to hire working class whites when they can get free labor from blacks. Why would they? Why would they hire white people that are working class that they're going to have to pay wages when they can get free labor from slaves. So essentially the existence of slavery actually hurt working class whites. They had a lot more in common with those slaves than they did the ruling class simply in the fact that both of them were being exploited and both of them, both of them in many ways were being economically disenfranchised by the ruling class. But simply because the ruling class were whites, by whiteness alone, simply by proximity to whiteness, the ruling class was able to pander to this identity politics and convince the white working class that you should stand in solidarity with us. <laughs> Once again, the reality was the existence of slavery actually hurt them. It made the, it meant that their wages were not as high. It meant that they didn't get paid as they didn't get as many jobs because there was free labor out there. Why hire, why hire a working class white when I can get free labor from a slave? Um, but yet simply because of whiteness alone, because of the identity politics at hand, they stood in solidarity. Many of them, not all, because there were many who even then who realized this, but many working class whites stood in solidarity with the ruling class over, over the, over the, um, the union and slaves, not realizing that, they had more in common with the slaves than they did the ruling class and the existence of slavery is actually hurting them. Well, the same thing is still, is still at play here as we're speaking about it in context to the Dixie campaign. Um, the propaganda that was being placed out by these, um, CEOs and these business owners who were against unions, it, it played into that same identity politics. Why do you want to be in why do you want to be standing in solidarity with the blacks? Like that's ridiculous. Like you're a white, there's more esteem. There's more acclaim to you. There, you have more esteem than that. You're more revered and respected. Why would you stoop to that level? And simply by pandering and playing to that identity politics, they were able to convince the working class whites to go along with not unionizing and getting the wages they actually deserve. It, once again, it happened back in slavery. We see it today in many ways. There's a lot of people, not all, but there, there are some working class whites who demonize immigrants. They demonize Mexicans, believing that Mexicans are taking their jobs because they're willing to pay low wages, not realizing the real issue isn't the immigrants. It's not the Mexicans. The real issue is the fact that these corporations and businesses are exploiting the wages of the working class and they're more willing to pay someone to pay a Mexican immigrant two dollars and 30 cents than they are to pay you minimum wage. 
that's what's insane. And I'm just throwing out a random number, but that's what's insane is that you think that the enemy in the scenario is the immigrant. The enemy is the ruling class. The same way it, the enemy for working class whites during slavery was the slave masters. The same way that the um, enemy of working class whites in the 40s when they were when uh, the Dixie campaign going going on was the owners of the companies and the businesses. It's the same exact it's the same exact process. But that's the, the craziest thing really about uh racism honestly just the, the idea of racism even identity politics is oftentimes it divides us so much and for working class people we really are all on the same side like regardless of how where you stand politically your race your ethnicity the working class are we, we're supposed to work as a cohesive unit but nonetheless now after this now I, i'm sorry i'm off topic i know i went off topic that's why we call this off topic dan smith show now to go back uh, with the passage of the Taft-Harley Act and obviously the Dixie campaign failing in the South, the unions failed to um, unionize the Southern textile industries. This had a crippling result on years to come because one, they didn't have a regional unions, didn't have a regional presence in the presence in the South, which is incredibly important. And two, that Taft-Harley Act made it really hard for them to have any wiggle room. Then you speed all the way up to the seventies and the high inflation of the 1970s um, eventually prompted the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker, to pursue a course of like a really like aggressive interest rate increases that increased the value of the dollar, but it decreased U.S. exports, which was it decimated the economy. It absolutely decimated the manufacturing sector. So then at that point, unemployment like it skyrocketed. Um, at one point it reached all the way up to 21 over 21%. I believe it was like 21.2%. Um, and at this time there were just like a lot of workers who were out of their jobs. By the time we reached 1982, there was, there was millions of workers who would have been working in manufacturing, but because these jobs got exported, uh, got outsourced, they no longer had jobs. And here's what's the crazy thing, guys, in the midst of all of this, like in the midst of, uh, this insecurity, this job insecurity, and everything going on, one thing, the companies finally realize something. They realize that in the midst of a panic, workers in the manufacturing sector were more willing to accept lower wages than they might have been years before when the unions were still strong or before this crisis happened. And they were more receptive to not unionizing because they didn't want to lose their jobs. And so once the, once corporations and businesses realize this, they use this to their advantage, obviously. At, at this point, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. In the midst of a crisis, they don't, they're not, they're not, no. See, see, back in the day, here's what happens. During the Civil War, that was the midst of a, of a crisis in our country, right? During the Great Depression, that was the midst of the crisis in our country. We had unions. And in those moments, that's when the unions leveraged their power the most, and, and during during the Civil War, the unions had they leveraged their power during World War One. They leveraged their power because there was a crisis. There was a crisis at home or overseas. There being a war, there was millions of industries that needed to manufacture products in order for for the soldiers in order to keep up with the war, which meant that unions were because the, the unions existed, workers were able to band together and they were able to get unprecedented power. But once you fast forward and you get all the way to once the 
once uh, you get all the way to 1970s, at this point, the unions already aren't as strong anymore, right? Because of the Taft-Harley Act that I was talking about that was passed in 1947. So by this time, in the midst of a crisis, instead of being able to, instead of banding together and leveraging their power in order to get a higher pay or higher wages, in the midst of a, in the midst of a crisis instead, they do the opposite because you know, no unions exist. So there's no class solidarity. Workers aren't the workers aren't standing in solidarity with other workers. They're just like, oh, my goodness. They go into that instinctive survival mode. I got to be able to provide for my family at all costs, at any cost. And so at them, that point, they begin saying, all right, well, I just need this job. I just I just got to get this job. I just got to. And that's what ends up happening. And so at that point, that goes back to when we we're talking about the economic theory of marginal product. That's when. Companies realized, oh, because these unions are they're not organized and powerful the way they were before in the midst of a panic. These workers are going to fold. There's no solidarity between them. They're just thinking about how they're going to be able to provide for their family and how they're going to be able to put food on the table, which means that they're going to be willing to accept less than they deserve. Why? Because, guys, anytime we are in a state of panic, just as a human being, just a general rule of thumb. Anytime you operate out of fear and out of panic, you are always going to be willing to settle for less than what you deserve. That's what it boils down to. That's really what it boils down to. In the state of panic, in the state of a pandemic, you're not even just a pandemic. That's where we're at now. But just in general, in the state of a crisis, if you operate out of fear and panic, you're always going to accept less than what you deserve. You're always going to end up settling because you're not able to see your worth in that moment. You're not able to see your value. And I hope that that's foretelling that that's there, there's some foreshadowing in that. Um, and I hope that there's a lesson that we can learn, even going back to what I just said, because this is why I got into this history, because once again, I get it. Not every segment I'm going to have the entertaining, funny topics or whatever it might be. Sometimes I want to get real like this. Uh, maybe I get really political like this because it's really important for sometimes for, for when I go down these little history lessons and things like that, that we that, you know, that everyone knows it. My all of my audience knows it. But there's a lesson we can learn from that, because in, today, right now, we're in the midst of a crisis and we have two options in the midst of fear, in the midst of a crisis. Are we going to operate out of survival to the point where we settle for less than we deserve or are we going to stand in solidarity with one another? That's not me being political. I don't want that to sound that's not I don't want that to sound being political. I'm just talking about on a very on a on a level of human interaction. The fact that we have a shared experience called life that we are all all experiencing together. In the midst of this crisis. In the midst of all this fear. Are you going to stand in solidarity with the people around you, the people of your community, or are you going to operate out of fear that causes you to, to settle for less than you deserve because you're so fixated on what's going to appease you. You get into this survival mode to at that point, everyone panics and no one trusts that the next guy is going to do what's best for everyone. But they think that the next guy is, well, he's just going to do what's good for his family. And so I need to just do what's good for my family. And it's that type of that, that uh, it's that type of mindset, that fear, that panic that causes us to not progress. That's just reality. 
and I, and I hope that's not off topic when I say that, but if it is, there's a reason we call this off topic Darren Smith show is that in the midst of this crisis, we can use this as a time to separate ourselves from one another and go into the survival mode where it's, I'm just going to get mine. I'm going to go to a store and rack up on toilet paper or whatever it might be, or can use this as a time where we say now more than ever, we need each other. Kind of going back to my earlier segment where I spoke on this, I was saying that now more than ever in the midst of this pandemic, we realize just how much we share this experience called life together and how truly connected we are all to one another, how connected all of us are to one another. There's no, there's no separating that point at this point. The only thing that can separate that reality is you. The only thing that can separate that reality is me. But in these moments of these high pressure moments of crisis, these are the moments when it is most important that regardless of where you, you span politically or anything like that, it's most important in these moments. I just feel like I got to give this nugget, but it's, it's most important in these moments that you recognize that our collective responsibility to one another in the empathy and the compassion that we do, that we show and give to one another is the only thing that's going to allow us to survive. That survival of the fittest mindset, that crabs in the bucket mindset, it's counterproductive. It's the antithesis of progress. It is literally the antithesis of progress. And so it's, I just think that's important to point out because it's, once again, it's crazy how that can happen. Like I go all the way back and I start talking about uh, uh, why unions collapsed in the seventies. And that same, that same, that in that story, we find a same panic and a fear and a crisis that we're seeing, that we're seeing rampant across our globe right now, that in the midst of fear, instead of people banding closer together, they decided instead to drift further apart and to go into this instinctive survival mode. I got to get mine. Um, type of mentality. So in this pan, in this current pandemic, in the midst of this crisis, are we going to operate in fear that's going to cause us to go to the store and lack uh, rack up on toilet paper, or we're going to operate understanding our collective social responsibility to one another. And that if we're going to make it out, it's going to be based on the empathy, the unity and the compassion that we show with one another. Solidarity is always important. Um, sorry, that's off topic, but now to get a little bit back on, um, to what I was saying. So yeah, at this point in the eighties, that's when, um, unions really saw by the, by the end of the seventies going into the early eighties, that's when unions really saw their demise at that point. And to this point, labor unions still exist, but it's, they're not, they don't have the potency or the presence that they had in during, you know, the civil war period, all the way up to the world war one or the great depression, they don't have that potency anymore or even during world war two, like in, and, and the reason they don't, um, a lot of people they, they haven't subscribed to them. They don't even know this. Some, there's a lot of people who don't even, don't even necessarily know this information, but the, the, the importance of the significance of unions is incredibly important because unions, once again, they're the reason we have a minimum wage. They're the reason we have, um, only X amount of hours we can work. And if we go over this amount, then we get overtime pay and all these different things. They're the reason that we have all of those things. They're the reason that exist. It's because workers, the working class banded together in solidarity and they demanded it. So I say all that to say that today in 2020, when we look at whatever it is, like our minimum wage or even what's going on in this current pandemic, um, you're only worth what you're willing to demand like a, a company's only going to pay you a, 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 your, your worth what a company's willing to pay you, but you only know what a company's willing to pay you when you demand it. 
You know, it's like that We Are The Millers that if y'all, y'all ever seen We Are The Millers, that's actually one of the few, like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not big on the genre of like white comedy movies. I'm, I'm not trying to offend anyone. They just ain't for me. But that's one I honestly do like. Um, cause it's a funny movie, but it's like that scene in We Are The Millers. It's like Jennifer Aniston in there, a few other actors. I can't even think of the names. But at one point, uh, they're all like doing some inside job. I think they're selling drugs. I can't even remember. They're smuggling drugs. Um, the main guy who's at the top, he's getting paid like, I, like I forget some dumb amount, like a million for it. Right. He promised the, the, the person who was willing to work right under him. Well, I'll give you, um, I'll give you 30,000. And then he promises a person and her, I'll give you 10,000. And there's one worker and he, they're getting paid. They're not getting paid anything. And then at one point in the movie, one of the workers find out, wait a minute, you're getting paid 500,000. You're only paying me 30,000. And then the next person's like, uh, you're getting paid thirty thousand. I'm only getting paid ten. And then the very last guy, the goof, the goof, the uh, the dummy, he's like, "Wait a minute, you guys are getting paid." Um, and that's kind of those those sentiments is exactly what I kind of uh I compare to what we have today in in the just the laws of business in the world of business. Everyone is demanding more. Your your bosses are demanding more. The CEOs are demanding more. The corporation themselves are constantly demanding more for the market. The only group that just is just willingly accepts the status quo doesn't even entertain the thought that maybe they could get more than what's being offered to them is the working class. We're the only ones who do it like every every in every other entity within the market within business they're constantly demanding more from the market the your owners are constantly demanding more profit they're constantly trying to cut losses they're trying to negotiate better trade deals and contracts with other businesses that they that they uh work with they're constantly demanding more the working class we're the only ones who just accept the status quo we're the wait a minute you guys are getting paid because the reality of it is we're being honest like Every time, especially these big companies, every time like a Amazon or Walmart, every time they reach a new plateau, every time they reach a new record level, like Amazon becoming one of the eight richest companies of all time and receiving a trillion dollar, um, evaluate a trillion dollar evaluation valuation. Um, every time this happens, like every time they reach a new plateau, the workers, the working class, if they're banded together, they should demand more too. Because once again, it's all about maximizing your profits. If that's the, that's just how business is working. That the the owners found a way to maximize their profits. That's why Jeff Bezos has has reached has put Amazon in the trillion dollar area because they're exploiting. They're they're either exploiting. Well, they are exploiting. But at the end of the day, they're max. They maximize their profits. They've exploited resources, labor, and all types of other and everything else they possibly could from tax, from corporate subsidies to tax write-offs to everything. They've done everything possible to maximize their profits. If a company like Amazon that's in a constant state of growth goes from being worth really not even being profitable its first seven years to now being the richest company in the world, constantly through and through all along the way, the workers, the working class laborers should have demanded more too. every time the company grows the work, the, the wages of the working class and the benefits of the working class should grow with it. That's how it would be if we had unions. Like the only other thing I compare it to is kind of like the NBA. Like if you guys watch the NBA, you see it all the time where um, every few years or even in the NFL, like or the MLB, like every few years there'll be a lockout. 
And during the lockout, the NBA players demand more money. They say, hey, like we've reached a new plateau. The NBA is making uh, now they're making 50, uh, uh, 50 billion a year before they're only making 30 billion a year. So if the NBA as a whole is making 50 billion and it's based upon our product, then in that case, we should make more as well. If all of y'all's value, if all of y'all's uh, worth has went up and your um, your wealth has went up, then ours should as well. And that's what the NBA does. So then they do these lockouts where the season might even get shortened in order for them to come to some type of contract. Why? Because the NBA players are figuring out what they're worth by demanding more. So they're figuring out exactly how much they mean to the company. They're figuring out how much do I mean to the NBA, just how much I mean. So as long as they stand in solidarity with one another, they're always going to be able to do this. But the moment they decide not to unionize, the moment they decide to not have a player's union, all of a sudden, the NBA will the, the NBA owners will start paying them considerably less, even at or or they'll just continue to pay them the same, even as they reach new plateaus and they're making billions and billions more. That's just the way it goes. Now, say a player making uh, averaging eight points a game is on that team. Say that player before was only making about five million a year. Now, because they did this lockout and they negotiated and demanded more, now the salary cap in the NBA has quadrupled that what it was before. Now that same player is only making $5 million a year. Now that guy's making $15 million a year. Do you think that LeBron James looks at that player and goes, oh, man, that guy's a bum. He doesn't deserve that money. He shouldn't be making $15 million a year for averaging eight points. No, because at the end of the day, he understands that as a part of the player union, that guy's on my team too. We're all collectively, we're all collectively uh, a part of the same team. We are the working class. Yet here, <laughs> outside of the NBA, if someone goes, "Oh, McDonald's workers should get paid fifteen dollars an hour," it will be people within our own group, the, our own working class, who go. Oh, McDonald's workers, they don't deserve to get paid $15 an hour. Why should they get paid $15 an hour for flipping burgers? Dude, he's on your team. That's like if I got a homie right now and he gets a job that he isn't qualified for that I don't think he's going to do good at. Do you think I'm going to start hating and be like, yo, he shouldn't even have that job? What? No, that's my homie. I want him to get his. Like, I want him to get his. Like, that's, I want him to get his. His success means my success. As the working class, we're in this together. Like, arguing or complaining that a, a McDonald's employee starts making $15 an hour to flip burgers is, is counterproductive to your own interest, which is what it should be like everyone else in the world of business to maximize your profit. So it makes no sense. Like it makes absolutely no sense. when people were like, Oh, like they shouldn't be getting paid $15 an hour to flip burgers, bruh. So what if that's what you, if, uh, so what if that's what you think, if you truly, even if you truly believe that a McDonald's employee isn't worth that $15 an hour, Y'all are on the same team. If y'all can finesse $15 an hour, finesse that $15 an hour. Why are you going to complain about it? Like if you could, it's not about what, it's not about what you think it's worth. It's about, it's about how much you can get. Like, I don't, I don't care. Do that finesse. Like it's like when we look at a quarterback, like uh, if we look like a quarterback in the, both of you who I'm giving these sports analogies to, like, I feel so bad if you don't follow sports like that. But if we look like a quarterback, like a Joe Flacco or one of these scrubs who get like these big dumb contracts and they don't live up to them. We see what NBA players do. They get this big dumb contract and they don't live up to it. Like, guess what? Do you think the other NFL players are sitting there mad about it? No, because they, they're glad. That means that they're all getting paid more. They don't care if they're, if that, um, 
player is worth that money or not. At the end of the day, their objective is to maximize their profit. So that's what they're doing. Well, guys, why is our why is our objective any differently? It shouldn't be your your opinion on whether or not a McDonald's employee should get paid fifteen dollars an hour as a member of the working class should not be whether or not you think they deserve fifteen dollars an hour. It should be whether or not you think they can get it. And if you think that we the working class, if we band together and unionize, that they can get that fifteen dollars an hour, then that's what they should get. And you should be happy that they get it. It's not about do you think companies sit there and go, man, are we really worth, are we really worth this money that these investors are keep pouring, pouring into us? Absolutely not. We saw it with Adam Newman with WeWorks. He built, they, uh, WeWorks had a $47 billion valuation that they, they, they were, they were projected to have a $47 billion valuation. It turns out now they're only worth about between five and $8 billion. But do you think Adam Newman, when uh, the other, uh, do you think Adam Newman and the other members of the board were going, Oh man, we're, we're not really worth that. We don't deserve to get paid that much. No, they're finessing the market. They're trying to maximize their profits. They're not, they're not worried about where it's not about what they believe they're worth. It's about what they believe they can get paid if they fight for it. That That's all it is. Why are you in the working class any differently? Like, I don't care if I think that a McDonald's worker is a $15 an hour talent. I only care that if I think they can get $15 an hour, that's what we should fight for because that's better for all of us collectively as the working class. And like, that's just really what it boils down to. But once again, like I said, if at the beginning of this, of this segment, if you are, if you are someone who's considered an essential employee, nothing speaks to this truth more than what we're experiencing right now. Like you're literally being asked to go to work and put yourself and your family in harm's way and to put them at risk because you're a necessity. We need you. You're worth more than that $10, $12 an hour that you're settling for. You're worth a lot more than that. But once again, your worth is contingent upon what you demand. That's what it boils down to. The reason right now, if you're making only $12, $15 an hour, the reason you're making that, it's not because that's the wages your job is actually worth. It's not because they can't afford to pay you more. It's because that's what we, the workers, have settled for. You only know your worth when you demand it. That's what it boils down to until we collectively. And that's why I think unions are so important as we even broach this com this conversation. And I hated that I even went on that tangent, but it's really important because the fact that right now we're sitting here today asking, should essential employees who are putting themselves and their family at a fatal risk should get paid more since they're having to work. The fact that we're having to ask that question to me, it's asinine. It's utterly ridiculous that this is an argument. It's utterly ridiculous. Regardless of where you fall on the spectrum, rather you're a Republican, rather you're a Democrat, rather you're a socialist or anything in between all of those that I just named. At the end of the day, the rule, the law of business at every level is to maximize profits. Your CEO doing it, the corporation doing it, workers, working class people. Why are we not doing it? Why are we not maximizing our profit? Why have we not demanded higher wages? Because that's the thing. The corporate, they don't stop. It's not like they get to this point where it's like, all right, we fought for this. Guess what? They're going to continue to demand more. Even when we look at the NBA, those NBA players, they don't, they're not just satisfied with what they have now. In five or 10 years, guess what they're going to do? 
they're going to demand even more. As the company grows, their demands are going to grow as well. Why are we the only group that stopped really demanding more, <laughs> haven't really demanded anything high in like in decades? Like we got a minimum wage and we got a minimum wage and we got uh uh what? A um a, a five a five day work week and all of a sudden we're like, all right, yeah, that's good enough. Okay. Oh yeah, and we got some 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 better uh some better uh safety and health standards and, and things of that nature. We're like, all right, that's good enough. Like, why? Why stop? Continue like we should continue. Like we should rather you're once again, like to me, this is just something that we should all stand in solidarity as if you're a part of the working class. Rather you're um left leaning, rather you're conservative, whatever it is, like at the end of the day, the law of business is to maximize profit. Why would you be against that? Like if you're if you're truly even for capitalism, why would you be against maximizing your profit if that's the purpose of a capitalist society? Which means at that point, we need to stand in solidarity together collectively as the working class, unionize and be able to make this a reality. Because like I said, like the fact that we're even having a segment on whether or not people putting themselves at harm's risk that could potentially die because their necessity should get paid more than what they currently get paid. When even when they currently get paid is a pay that hasn't been raised is a, is a minimum wage pay that hasn't been raised over 10 years. To me, that's just, it's, it's asinine. It's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, thank you for tuning in to off topic. Darren Smith show. Uh, glad we're getting to these topics. Wait, let me see some of you guys comments before I leave. Jason Ramirez. Yo, this whole segment was so fire and you just put a ton of things in perspective for me. Thank you so much. Hey, I appreciate it. Good luck. Um, let me see what else you guys are saying. Garrett Sims. I totally agree with you. We really need to bring back unions. What else? Who else is saying something? Lex Morales. So what you're saying is we need to stop showing up at work until we can get about $21 an hour. Bro, that's, hey, listen, um, I, I'll call everybody, bro, regardless of whether they're a boy or girl, but uh, that's what I'm saying. That's really what it boils down to. That's exactly what I'm saying. Like, you, you know, you only know your worth when you demand it, and that's when you kind of figure out, like, oh, this is how much I can get away with. This is how much we can actually get. Um, so, yeah, that's what I continue to do. Let's see. Rashad Alter, this is an amazing segment. So much insight. Thank you so much. Keep doing what you do. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, and yeah, guys, and can, we'll be back tomorrow for another episode of Off Topic as well from 4 to 6 p.m. Continue to tune in and listen. Thank you for tuning in to Off Topic Darren Smith Show. And uh, I'll see you guys tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m.